Hello and welcome to Film Disruptors, Season 1, Episode 9. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is the show which brings you the game changers in film, whether that's in storytelling, finance, distribution, or in this case, the art of production design and world building, because I'm delighted to welcome Alex McDowell to the show. I would describe Alex as a visionary. As a designer, his credits include the formative and unforgettable design on Minority Report and a number of other massive Hollywood movies, including Fight Club, Man of Steel. More recently, he has been developing this art and science and philosophy of world building in film as well as beyond in gaming with corporations and he teaches all of this at USC and today we get really kind of get a masterclass uh, a private masterclass from one of the leaders in the in in the world in this space I talked to Alex recently at Pinewood when he took some time out from his work on the design for Star Wars episode 9 which I tried not to get too excited about and probably failed and we really dug into the art and practice of world building how it can transform storytelling and drive efficiencies across the whole production process if you are enjoying film disruptors may i suggest a couple of ways to stay in touch firstly subscribe on itunes this will mean you get the latest episode as soon as they drop just search film disruptors on itunes and click subscribe Secondly, if you go to the home of Film Disruptors, that's www.alexstoltz.com, you can sign up for our email newsletter, and this is where you can also find out more about our guests, access the Film Disruptors back catalogue, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you, and I really appreciate everyone who has already reached out. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening, and now I'm going to hand you over to Alex McDowell. And I started the show by asking Alex what it was like designing the world for Star Wars Episode Nine. The hugely different set of conditions around Star Wars is that you are stepping inside a, a mythology that's incredibly deep-rooted, that has a massive fan base, that has many films um, under its belt, and... And I'm, it, I think it's a fascinating area to negotiate between respect for tradition and, and, and genres. You know, it's absolutely not science fiction. It's, it's really history, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in the terms of the way that the stories are told. And, and at the same time, one wants to, to um, you know, the, we're pushing forward and we're, we're in a new um, era. And, uh, and so... It's it's fascinating, but also I think important to I something I didn't understand is that you have access to a incredible knowledge base and skill base of artists and designers who really work exclusively inside this franchise. And so there are artists I'm working with, certainly some of the best artists I've ever worked with in my career, who are really inaccessible unless you're working inside um, this universe. It's a, it's a, it's wow. a fascinating process. Wow. And is there a sort of Bible which you can consult in terms of that, that history or, or is it just knowing the films? Because I think at one point or, or 
prior to episode seven, they declared that all of the other literature around Star Wars post Return of a Jedi was was no longer canon. Well, it's quite an interesting interesting thing to do, I suppose. And I guess you just it's a case of keeping control of that that uh, that universe. But it, yeah, is is that a particular thing that you have to do to to consult and find out whether something is true within within the Star Wars world? You know, and I think yes, yes. Certainly, and there are amazing resources for that. There, there are guardians of canon within the uh, within the franchise, um, but but I I see it very much the same as one would have to approach, let's say, the Greek myths or a pre-existing body of work that you're responding to. In many ways, what we had to do with for Superman with Man of Steel is that that you have to respect the the uh, narrative context and and that's fundamental to world building is that you you start with the conditions of the world and then you build out from that and so um, it's always been really interesting me to me to pay a lot of attention to reality even if that reality is entirely embedded within fiction it's you know it's pre-existence denotes it's sort of it's um, it's somewhat intractable and those are constraints which i find fascinating as a designer so i I don't see anything but but an advantage and it's fantastic to be able to reach out to pablo hidalgo in in san francisco uh, or at skywalker and say you know if we're in this era what would have happened what what battles uh, would we have encountered as a stormtrooper or you know whatever it whatever it might be fascinating and as a Star Wars fanboy, I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm trying, trying to keep a lid on my excitement about it all and, and, and retain retain some sort of degree of seriousness uh, to the conversation. Um, so, you know, I really want to sort of taking it, taking it back to the, well, this, this concept of world building. And this is something which you, you are pioneering and you've set out a lot of different philosophies and concepts and practices around around this process i mean the first question i'd like to to ask really on that is just just to you know walk walk us through what world building is so there's a, there's a number of strands to the to the sort of idea or the concept of world building i think first of all it's a term that is um well known inside the game industry um that the notion that one develops a world from which ideas spring and stories develop is is not a new idea. I think what we've tried very hard to do, um, and I can wind back and sort of explain how this how this started, but I think what we're trying to do now is really develop a rigorous process around that idea that all stories spring from a holistic world space. And in order for stories, for narratives to be really rich, really robust, have legs, be capable of spreading across uh, media, for example, to really be looking at the kind of transmedia conditions that we find ourselves in, really radically different media forms that require new stories and new ways of telling them, that world building is this amazing base of knowledge. So I think I would say I, I would sort of get a couple of 
preconceptions out of the way that I think people equate world building or, or make a direct correlation between, the, say, the world building of, of J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, uh, on one hand. Um, and I think that that is not what we're doing. Uh, and I'll explain why it's very specifically not what we're doing. The other is um, the sort of idea of futurist, which is also something that world building is used for a lot, which is how do you start creating narratives that look into the future and become um, capable of changing the future, which is a part of what we're doing in the real world um, with world building. But we are not futurists and we're not trying to be predictive in a way we're trying to really follow story and just understand and acknowledge that fiction is an incredibly powerful um, component of the way in which you think about the world around you that everything that exists from this moment forward is fiction um, and that's a fantastic opportunity and that we need to learn how to how to use that but so world building in in the terms that i understand it is is a bed um, that is around a design set of design principles, primarily for my for me because that's my background. But it it involves um, gathering really expertise, gathering expertise around the notion of a world, the world that you want to explore and inhabit, and then going through this rigorous process of research and inquiry, the sort of framework of what if why not challenging all the conditions of the world taking on board the large scale framework sort of what when are we where are we what's the climatic conditions what are the economic conditions is there gravity you know um are we human the the, the any number of things that that absolutely frame the rules of a world but then to kind of dive into that at multiple scales and say, what if we were developing a city for this world? What would the, uh, the what would the politics, the infrastructure, the culture, and the energy, let's say, of that city, tell us about the world? And then continuing to scale on down through neighbourhood and community, through family or or the small group into the individual, and then when you reach the scale of the individual, you start, you launch them into that world, essentially. And each individual who needs to negotiate and travel through the world that you've created is by default creating a story. And the story that they create tests the world. So we start almost from the beginning in a design project, say with a film, thinking about narrative, thinking about how a character would have to negotiate the world that we're creating, but they're negotiating it through all of the conditions that you would find in the real world. And you ask the basic questions, you know, how do I, where do I wake up? What did I have for breakfast? How do I get to work? Those kind of fundamental day in the life kind of questions tell you an enormous amount about how the, how the world functions. And the more stories that you push through the world, the more clear the world becomes. And so as a designer, what I'm really doing is building intimate knowledge about all of the aspects that are going to feed the design of the environment. Um, and most importantly, the design of the environment with respect to the characters who populate it. 
um, or populate the multiple environments that we're building. And the other aspect, there's this sort of essential triangle that I think all storytellers engage in, which is the relationship between environment and character, um, the influence they have on one another, and then the viewpoint that one chooses to view the relationship through, the kind of lens that you're looking through to understand that relationship. So world building is sort of taking that triangle and laying it down over the multiple conditions or rules of the world at multiple scales. And once you've started that process, your knowledge of the world just gets richer and richer and the stories get richer and richer in turn. listening to Film Disruptors and I'm in conversation with Alex McDowell. If you're enjoying Film Disruptors, may I suggest subscribing on iTunes. Just search Film Disruptors on iTunes and click subscribe. And in this section, Alex talks about his formative work on Minority Report. There were a few reasons that made it um, a unique test and it was the launch of the notion of world building for me or just having to understand that we had to start with a world because the first rule of that game was that there was no script when we started. Scott Frank and myself started on the same day. So when the writer and the designer start in lockstep, there's inevitably going to be a period where it's very loose. And we didn't really know how long that was going to be. Um, although, Probably the majority of films that I start don't really have a script that's intact. They mostly have something for you to read. And and so traditionally, as a production designer in film, you sort of are trained to say, okay, let's break down the script and see what sets we have to build, you know, in some very pragmatic way. Mm-hmm. Um, when you don't have a script, you start thinking much more deeply about what are the, what's the story that I'm telling and what is the context and the framework for that story and you don't get i would say bogged down in the notion of like what set do i have to build you're really thinking at a much higher level about the why of the narrative and so in the case of minority report we really we couldn't look to the philip k dick book because it was set in the 1950s in a military state in new york and we knew from steven spielberg that it was 2050 Um, some point in our future, that it was going to be set in Washington, D.C., that it was around a police department, not a a police state per se, and that it was centered, that the one common factor from the Philip K. Dick book and and the film is that you have these precognitive beings, the precogs at the center, so they're the disruptor. And then Stephen just set a, a basic set of rules in place, which were that... Uh, it is Washington, D.C., it is 2050. He wanted it to be a realistic future. So we defined the idea of future reality rather than science fiction very early on. And then he wanted it to be a benign environment so that apparently, at least to begin with, the audience would feel there was nothing wrong with a murder-free society and that the this was a society that seemed to function well, that was... Um, not using fossil fuels, full of green space, technology that worked, seemed to be socially intact, you know, sort of politically stable. So those conditions we knew we had to work with. And then we started extrapolating. 
um, we said, well, what if the what, what if the precogs had a limited range? Then there would be a massive influx of population scrambling to kind of get underneath this umbrella of a murder-free, crime-free society. And given that, and given the conditions of Washington, D.C., which is you can't build higher than the Capitol building, where would this population go? So we imagined a new city that would spring up on the other side of the Potomac very rapidly, very vertically, um, because it was clustering to stay within the what we defined as the kind of radius of influence of the precogs. And that created a vertical kind of hierarchy. And so we started breaking down this world build in terms of things like urban planning. You know, how does a how does the infrastructure of a city work if you were bringing it from the ground up? What does transportation look like? What does fashion look like? What does architecture look like? Um, what is the politic, political and economic influences on the world? And then the future reality piece sort of triggered the other really powerful aspect that, that we discovered to be world building, which was that we had to, um, we could no longer rely on the closed doors of a film environment of, a, of, you know, of Hollywood to just make up our story. We had to go out into the world and really deeply investigate what the future might bring. Um, and because we had Steven Spielberg's name at our back, it unlocked doors to all sorts of places, you know, into giant corporations, into DARPA, which is the, the military research um, organization, um, part of, you know, part of the government that we, we had access to. Um, it gave us access to research laboratories at places like Apple or um, Amazon and um, into architects' office like Frank Geary, into MIT Media Lab, which was very significant. We, we were talking to Bill Mitchell, who was the head of architecture there, to Neil Gershenfeld, who runs, who's a quantum physicist and runs the Center for Bits and Atoms, and who told us that he had never been asked to solve precognition, but he thought he could probably do it. Um, so we had these kind of amazing encounters with, with brilliant minds, you know, far more brilliant than ours, who were enormously qualified specialists in their own field. And, and one crucial part of world building is that it's that gathering of knowledge um, in a collaborative sense that you, you actually put a lot of very disparate skills around the table when you're doing an effective world build. And each of them asserts an influence and the quantum physicist may be putting his theory forward about using quantum physics for precognition, and the urban planner may be putting his theory forward about vertical infrastructure versus horizontal infrastructure, suburbia versus, you know, city center, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, and each of those um, intellects around the table um, starts through the kind of tension uh, that they bring to their own particular um, area of specialty, specialization, having to coexist with other people who are highly specialized, who may not have actually had to confront each other's um, particular needs in terms of thinking about the future. You get these fantastic tensions and they have to resolve themselves. You know, it's impossible for somebody to come forward in a Hollywood way and say, well, what if there was no gravity? Because it undermines so many of the other sort of um, areas of knowledge on the table that you, you'd have to 
resolve that with everything else. So you you get to some kind of fundamental rules quite quickly, and then you when you you've used the word fun, and I and I think it, it's it's fantastic fun for anybody who whose life is driven by curiosity as can, as I think mine is. You are just constantly being surprised by by something that's an asserting an influence on the narrative space and on the way the world develops. And I would say I've done, I mean, I've done hundreds of world builds now in the last 15, 17 years, and you never can predict where they're going to go. You, you are always going to find that there are left field ideas that turn everybody, you know, sort of turn everybody's um, inclinations in different directions and challenges basic notions and world's, so with Minority Report, it got, first of all, it got very interesting in terms of the um, the sort of things we were hearing. And now I think, you know, Minority Report has a reputation for being one of those films that accurately predicts the future or has predicted the future over the last decade or so. And it, it was not that we were being so clever, it's that we were just listening well, that lots of people were working inside labs with a 10 to 15 year arc of research and they were already working on things that were going to be outcome by now. Um, so when we were looking at driverless cars or flexible media uh, outputs or tracking audience or um, Internet of Things or biomimicry and robotics and drones and all of those kind of things that had a place in, in, in the film, these were all real-world research projects that were in full swing when we were sort of setting foot inside these laboratories, but they were the tiny sort of first seeds of some of these ideas. And because we had fiction to play with, we were able to say, okay, if that's what you, you know, that's what you're working on, why could we not do this with it? So we could take the idea of driverless cars and say, well, what if they went vertically? How does Tom Cruise get to work in the morning if he lives at the top of a very tall skyscraper and goes to work in old dc what if his driverless car was essentially a taxi cab meets an elevator um so we were combining the notions of driverless uber you know um flexible elevator systems um and indeed you know mobility as furniture because we've seen examples in the last year of people using cars parked inside living rooms as pieces of furniture. Those were all ideas that we had just been playing with just by asking the question of how he gets to work in the morning. But we don't get to those outcomes without a lot of people gathered around that. You know, that, that, that impacts uh, car design, of course, and, and a bunch of social impacts, research, and um, economic conditions, and maglev, anti-gravity, you know, so the, you, you're kind of playing with a lot of different pieces mm. just to get Tom Cruise to work. Mm. That really, I think, brings to light just why that film is is so rich in the in, in the many details it brings to screen and um, that's that's wonderful to hear how that how that process came about. I, I guess you know so so many questions, but uh, I mean one one is you, you had incredible access on that project to these top minds. Uh, what do you suggest to maybe an independent uh, storyteller or, or, or creator who 
wants to build their world but maybe isn't able to have those same people around the table are there ways that they can they they can go about this but in a in a leaner way yeah it's a, i think it's a great question and, and and it comes up a lot you know we we do a world building three-day workshop at the berlin film festival with the berlinale talents every year and these are young filmmakers from all over the world some of whom have to wait you know a month or two to be able to afford the digital you know the 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 cards to put in their cameras as it were mm. um so so it, it's 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 important, but I'd say it's fundamentally a scalable practice, um, and it, it's highly scalable. We've tried it at, you know, I've been teaching for the last five years, and so for student projects, it's a constant question. Um, the, the, there's a couple of things to know, I think. One is that those experts that we had access to come to the table ultimately because they're just as curious as we are. And they're fascinated by the opportunity across the board. I don't think I've ever met a domain expert who was prepared to talk at all, um, who wasn't fundamentally interested in applying um, narrative and fiction to their own um, sets of questions. And one one of the things that happened, which is... Worth knowing, it's widely available. There's a, 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 there's a group called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Neil Gershenfeld joined forces with people like myself right after the Minority Report because scientists bemoan the lack of intelligence in much of um, cinema where, where it comes to science, with respect to science, that, um, that people make it up, right? They don't pay attention, they don't do good research, and, and they're prepared to make ludicrous um, scientific claims to support their stories. And we've always found that real science is far more interesting than, than crazy fiction. Um, so the Science and Entertainment Exchange was formed at the Royal Academy for Sciences in Washington, and it's a resource for filmmakers at all scales you can call up and say, I have this problem, um, certainly in the US, but I don't, I can't imagine it's not actually a worldwide thing. It's, a, it's a, essentially a network of scientists, and they will um, put out a search inside their network, and those scientists will come to you and uh, provide their expertise for free. So you kind of do have access to the same people as, as Minority Board and films like that. Um, and the other thing we found, just at the other complete other end of the scale, is that I teach at University of Southern California, which is um, a collection of multiple schools. So the School of Cinema, Cinema is one of, I think, 14 different schools that include medical and economics and music and theater and um, uh, law and very, you know. So um, there's an infrastructure there. And my class, my world building class, tends to attract people from across disciplines. And so we almost, we've been very lucky in that we've tended to find that amongst the students that gather around their interest in world building, there is an economist and an urban planner and a choreographer and an um, a animator and, you know, sort of a really broad range of, of um, people working in, in biology and um, and there is an interesting opportunity just to sort of reach out to that group directly around you and say, 
what is your area of specialty and just be paying attention. And rather than um, the reason I said earlier that that I think we're specifically not doing J.R. Tolkien world building is that I think it's all about finding an alternative to the single author that that what we have found is that collaboratively joining forces with a group of people who are interested in the outcome of, of a world in general develops these incredibly interesting narratives, as I say, that you can't really predict, but they, they are highly democratic in their inception and they are paying a lot of attention to whatever level of expertise there is available. And you end up with a kind of group voice, a collective voice that is much closer to kind of one, one could say to tribal storytelling, to the idea that um, storytelling is the way we make sense of the world around us and that the great myths were passed down from generation to generation, having been touched by often thousands of storytellers. And each one of them's voice added more and more richness and complexity to the narrative. So we're doing this kind of microcosms in a way of tribal storytelling where um, the notion of a single author kind of gets buried inside the world build. And that doesn't by any means negate the script because we, we, we still need there to be something that comes out of this, you know, this world space that we build that is instructive, that gives people a really clearly defined set of instructions to how do, do they move through this world space? How do you follow or d define the singular um, linear narrative in one aspect? So a script's very useful for that. And the writer is paying, is being given a resource in a way that's just richer than they might usually be used to. Instead of having to look around their own specific world space as a single author, they're tapping into a massive uh, resource. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I think it's, it's highly, um, uh, what's that word? Um, it's, high, it's highly complementary mm -hmm. um, to the notion of, of writing, but it precedes it often. And what we found with Minority Report is it really did kind of flip the model, that the world came first by default because the writing wasn't there, it took longer. And then we discovered that there were a number of narratives within the script uh, beyond the architectural, contextual, environmental world that was the design frame. But the stories themselves were being triggered by ideas that the world threw up, you know, throughout. Um, and so there, there are, if you take that idea of how did Tom Cruise get to work in the morning and the vertical um, car system, um, that there is a car chase in Minority Report called the, vertic the um, Vertical Car Chase, I think. That came entirely out of the world build. It would never have existed if, if, it, had been, if it had been started by a script. And it's a tiny example, I think, of, of ideas uh, you know, throughout that film and many, which is if, if, if everybody's paying attention to, to the logic of the world and, the, and that narrative, that's narrative world space that's developing, it's a resource for not only the designer and director, the writer, the cinematographer, all of the keys, the costume designer, etc. Everyone can tap into this. Mm. So it kind of turns into going back to the original idea of what is process um, how do we create a 
spine that is a resource for all of the um, key players in developing media, whether it's film, TV, animation, game, um, theater, etc. How do you actually create a methodology at its core that helps everybody cycle in and out of an expanding kind of knowledge base? Yes, and I can see, I can, I can clearly see the logic of that process. You create the, you create the blueprint. You create the the world from which stories can emerge. I guess it raises a question about finance to some, you know, to some respect, because the, because we're still in this, in the film world, we're sort of locked into this process where in order to get finance, you need a script. And in order, yeah. and so you have to, you put all your resources into getting a script and, or at least a, you know, at least a, a treatment of story. Um, and, and then you, you know, you hope to get finance there, commercial or, or public finance from that. So I guess there's a there's a, just a I mean I don't know if you, you know if you have a, any thoughts on this but um just on a, on that practical level how if it feels like there needs to be a sort of a re realignment of how financing in invests in this kind of model. Yeah. I think so. I I think that as a practitioner I think what I what I would say is that I understand why script is the basis of financing traditionally, um, in that it's a sort of singular artifact that a lot of people can gather around, scribble on, you know, <laughs> interfere with easily. Um, uh, and, and it's not cheap, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's often a very expensive artifact. But it is one that people can. That it, it's it's um it's a common platform, right? So a lot of people, most of the people who gather around it can exchange ideas around it. It's a, it's a simple intrinsic language at the core and everybody can weigh it. You know, you could sort of divide the amount of money you have by the number of pages it gives you and throw in a couple of extra um, disruptors and, you know, this bit's going to be more than that. And you can start breaking it down at its coldest. It's a sort of spreadsheet, you know, that, 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 um, that's relatively simple for people to understand. Um, and most of the time, it's absolutely true that I don't really get deeply into a world building film until I've been hired. It's, it's an intrinsic part of my design process. It doesn't cost any more than it does to do production design. It's just kind of a different name for what we always do. And so what I've seen working very well is something like a synopsis or a treatment that has a world build attached to it mm. so that you get deep enough to get an initial round of funding and then you fortify that idea and you give a context to the screenwriter that allows the script to develop in lockstep with an initial world build. And that in itself is a pretty economic concept if you can get an initial round of funding from from the treatment or the synopsis or the kind of core story idea without having your 108 pages uh, printed out. You're listening to Film Disruptors and I'm in conversation with Alex McDowell. And if you are enjoying the show, may I suggest you subscribe to our email newsletter. Simply go to alexstoltz.com and click sign up. 
And in this final section, Alex gives his advice for emerging storytellers. And I start by asking him how he established himself in his career. I think I try and pin it down, and I think it's all Glenn Matlock's fault. I, I was um, was studying painting at Central, and Glenn, who I'd never met, came in, and I was responsible for booking the bands and asked me if I wanted a band to play tomorrow. And we said, you know, what's the name of the band? And he said, the Sex Pistols. And we said, we can't resist having a band with a name like that playing. Um, it was their first gig. So we... we it, really? um, Wow. <laughs> Sorry. They played, they played the night before at, at, um, at St. Martin's, supporting Bazooka Joe. And then we were their first headline. They actually, Bazooka Joe threw them off the stage. I went to watch and then and then they came and and um my my life changed immediately really I I started fairly quickly working with the pistols they were incredibly powerful and appropriate blast you know to clear our heads and uh ended up printing t-shirts for Vivian Westwood and um but but again with Glenn um when he left the Pistols uh, and formed the Rich Kids, he wanted a record sleeve, and he and I formed a design studio to design record sleeves as a result. And so that became Rocking Russian Design. That in turn, again because of Glenn, because uh, he was uh, became bass player in Iggy Pop's band, um, I designed the Soldier album and the campaign around Soldier for Iggy. Um, and then at some point, Iggy said, do you know anyone who can make a music video? And we went, we'll do that. We'll do that. And discover what it meant. It was a couple of years before MTV and gathered, you know, in a photographer's studio, amazing photographer, Brian Griffin, um, and a young filmmaker called Nick May and myself. And we made the first three music videos for Iggy. And then that launched between record series and music videos that became our business. Um, and I went to the, the States because there was just that much more music videos being made. And I was really loving production design, um, which was really what I'd done from the moment I said yes to Iggy. I'd become a production designer and, and I um, moved into uh, eventually into a company called Propaganda, which is where David Fincher um, was the leading light. And I worked with him for a year seven days a week, um, moving through music videos to commercials and then was asked and everybody was moving up together. So we all went from music videos into commercials into features. Um, and I did a couple of films, Lawnmower Man and The Crow and then Fight Club went back with David, David and, and really, you know, one of the best filmmakers alive and was who who pushes the edges of everything and just an incredible learning space and and so by the end of fight club i think we'd developed a lot of the practices that are still in place for me now and and so it sort of went on from there but um it came really directly out of music alex i just want to ask you one more question uh, sure. alex what is your advice to emerging storytellers well, I like the way you phrased the question in that I think it is about storytelling first, and I think it's media and platform second. Um, 
there are obviously people who love a specific medium and they just want to work in that medium. But I think from, from ground up, the desire to be a storyteller, um, I think it really requires us at the moment not to be bound by any particular platform constraint, nor by any tradition uh, unless it's helpful. You know, I think there's a great opportunity to amalgamate traditional craft and all the things that we know. There's no reason in heaven and then no, I, I wouldn't suggest it in any way that you throw away that, that deep-rooted craft knowledge. But I think we have to think about applying it within a different framework. And that framework is far more intuitive, far closer to the way we really think. Um, it's generally liberated by technology, I would say, and I think it's worth being open-minded about that. There is good and bad, and we don't want to follow the sort of shiny objects, but I think if one was to say, be media and platform agnostic, um, follow the story first, and then I think the other hugely important thing is to be collaborative and understand that these stories are going to be so large and need to, to travel so broadly across so many different spaces that we don't have the capability, I don't think, if we ever did, of doing this single-handedly. And I think we're really, we're still suffering from, a, from this illusion of the auteur, you know, the, the author directed, the, author, the author's direction of the audience's gaze. And I think it's really... I think it's a real disadvantage for everybody from those who are trained as directors to think that they have a singular responsibility to their vision. I see it over and over again at, at school that, that people are still being trained to be dictatorial in a way. And they're missing the opportunity of an incredible resource that surrounds them um, in all ways. And I think for me, it's the, uh, the breaking the boundaries of the discipline that, that, you know, not to call myself a specialist, but to be that, you know, to be a curious individual who can listen to people from a huge range of different skills and backgrounds um, and benefit over and over again from that. And I think that's really where we are as creators. Our job is to listen, you know, to, to um, develop the stories that we are most interested in through engagement and observation of the world around us and then to pass those stories on. Um, and that's a huge responsibility, but it's a responsibility that can be shared across, you know, a vastly skilled uh, infrastructure of people. And, and it, I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be doing that. Hmm. I think that's a great place to leave things so it just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us Alex thank you it was really a pleasure if you'd like to find out more check out the home of film disruptors alexstoltz.com that's s-t-o-l-z where you can download today's show notes sign up for updates and get in touch I'd love to hear from you Thank you for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon.